Let's dive into the text this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is where we're going to be, verses 14 to 16. If you've got a Bible open there, whether it's paper copy, you've got an electronic version, however it is that you want to access it, uh, go ahead and turn there. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Uh, you find these words recorded from the Apostle Paul there. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Over the course of these last several months together, we've been looking at the identity of the church And one of the reasons we've done so is because we feel like there needs to be a recovery of who the church is in our day and time. If you look at at websites and you drive through the community, you can see all different sizes, shapes, and styles of churches. You see big box churches and you see boutique churches, right? You got all different kinds and colors and shapes and sizes, but there are certain things that must be true about every church, regardless of its size and regardless of its style, if it is to be a true church. And one of those, some of those things are the, the, the identity that the authors of Scripture, that God through the authors of Scripture give us. Because we receive an identity, we don't achieve one for ourselves. We've talked about that on a, often uh, with regards to our personal lives, but this morning I want us to consider that with regards to our corporate life together. Right? That we don't have the, uh, the freedom or the liberty to change the metaphors that the Bible uses for the church and create new metaphors and then insert those and say this is what the church is. Rather, we receive what the Scriptures tell us the church is and then we try to order our lives and pattern our ministry to what the Bible says we are. Because we receive an identity, we don't achieve one. God's given us, He's marked out who we are and so we want to respond to that. Over the last several weeks, we've seen that the church is a spiritual family. The church is a chosen race. The church is a royal priesthood. The church is a kingdom of uh, of priests, a holy nation of people for God's own possession. Then last week from Revelation 19, that the church is the bride of Christ. So this week, out of this text in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we want to see that the church, God's people, are a pillar and buttress of truth. That's what Paul says, the metaphor that he uses there to describe the church. Right, if you got the sermon notes, they didn't make it onto the slides this morning. We have some technical difficulties today. Right? It just happens sometimes. But that's the first point if you're on the sermon notes that the church is a pillar and buttress of truth. Now, Paul uses two images or metaphors there for the church. The first one is that metaphor of the pillar. Now, this would have been widely known in ancient Ephesus. That's where Timothy is. That's where he's ministering, he's pastoring. Paul has left him there in order to continue to have gospel ministry there in the city of Ephesus. And the city of Ephesus was home to one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, which was known as the Temple of Artemis. Now, Artemis was a Greek goddess that was worshipped by many of the pagans in Paul's day. And her temple uh, stood rising above the Ephesian skyline. It was a massive, massive structure. And it was composed of these 100, this really ornate and iconic columns or pillars that supported this massive roof structure. It was a roof made out of solid marble. 
Can you imagine the weight that needed to be supported by all these columns as they rose off of the foundation to support a solid marble roof? And that solid marble roof would glisten in the sun as the sun fell upon it for everyone around the sea. What those pillars did was they held high the reputation of Artemis. Those pillars supported the roof structure so that all the world could see the place where Artemis was worshipped, the place where Artemis was venerated, the place where Artemis was served. And listen, the church does the same thing with regards to the truth of God. It holds it high for the whole world to see. It's a pillar that raises it up onto the skyline of people's lives so they might be able to catch a glimpse of the truth of who God is and how He's revealed Himself to us. That's not the only image that he uses there, though. He also talks about there being the church being a buttress of truth. Some of your translations might say it's a bulwark or a foundation of truth. Something that provides support Right? Like a found, like, like, I think a foundation is a really good translation. So while the church, both, it holds high the truth, it also seeks to sink it deep into the lives of its members. Okay? Because there's two ways to build a foundation in our particular community or in our local context, right? You can either build a foundation like they do in the houses that surround us in the developments in these homes. Right? What they do basically is they take Texas black clay and they scrape it flat and they set some forms they rough out some plumbing and they take concrete trucks they back them up and they just begin to dump concrete and float it on top of this black clay that's one way to build a foundation now that's why some of your houses right you hear them pop and click and crack and the drywall begins to separate at times because as that soil heats up and dries out right the, the it it pulls away from the foundation whenever it rains and gets cold it presses in on the foundation there's this constant movement of the foundation there's another way to build a foundation though you look at this you, when you see this when they build much larger structures more formidable structures right? you see them, when they build skyscrapers in downtown Dallas or they build large government buildings what they'll do is instead of just floating the slab on top of the clay is they drill down deep and they set piers and those piers are resting upon a solid substrate bedrock down beneath the clay so that whenever they pour the foundation that floating concrete is not resting on the soil but upon those piers that provide support for it from underneath and that's exactly what the church does with the truth as well See, it's not only our responsibility to hold it high for all the world to see, but to sink it deep into the lives of its members so that there's support for the beauty and truth of who God is. So there's not only these intellectual arguments and defenses for God, but there are these relational arguments and defenses for the reality of God and the person of Jesus Christ as He's forming us into His own image as truth gets sunk deep into our lives it's a pillar and a buttress of truth and the truth that we are called to hold high and sink deep is this listen church don't miss this it's the truth of the gospel it's the truth of the gospel all throughout Paul's letters he gives several little nutshells of the gospel in different places and one of those is here in first Timothy chapter 3 where many scholars believe he takes a an, a, an old hymn or an ancient creed about Jesus. And in verse 16, he goes on to fill in the content of what we are to be holding high and sinking deep into our lives. Right? Where he says this, 
We just read it together. He says, He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world. And He was taken up in glory. Jesus is what we are called to hold high and to sink deep into our lives and hold out for all the world to see. Now this hymn that scholars say Paul grabs and fills in the content of the truth here with is it exists in three couplets. Okay? And they each have a, a, an end of a spectrum which is intended to include, include everything in between. If you read poetry, oftentimes it's what you see. Whenever the authors use the end of a spectrum in two occasions, they, they, what they intend to mean is everything that falls between those two ends of the spectrum. And listen to what is included in these couplets between the flesh and the spirit. What's included in there? Everything. There's this, in this spectrum of the angels and the nations, people upon the earth, between the world and between glory. Right? So everything. They're including everything between those two ends of the spectrum. In the first couple, it talks about the revelation of Jesus, that He appeared in a body, that He, didn't, he wasn't created whenever He was born, but He was manifested. Right? We began to see Him in a bodily form. Right? He, was, he was revealed to us, and then He was vindicated by the Spirit through His resurrection. The second couplet speaks of the witness of Christ. That He was seen by the angels and preached among the nations. So it wasn't just that He was born and that He was raised. It's that people saw it and so did the heavenly beings. Everyone on heaven and people upon the earth saw and were witnesses to this person Jesus who lived and died and was raised. But not only that, not only that, the third couplet speaks of the reception of Jesus whenever he was believed on in the world and taken up into glory. See, it's not just enough to hear about him, you have to respond to him. Believe upon him here, and Jesus is received by the heavenlies as he's taken up into glory and ascends to the right hand of the Father. This is the truth that Paul says we're to hold high and to sink deep. Listen, church, as a pillar of the gospel, we are to declare it. We are to declare it. We're to make it obvious to the world around us. Right? And the church can do that in a number of ways which we're going to talk about here in a moment, but also as a buttress of the gospel, we are to demonstrate it in the way that our body life as a church gets formed, in the way that we relate to each other, in the way that we conduct ourselves in the world. That's what Paul says the church is. And we've been asking this question all throughout this series, is how do we become what we are? Right? Because when you look at that, you go, that's a pretty tall order. How do we become what we are? Those who hold the truth high and those who sink the truth deep into our lives. Let me give you two things this morning and then we're going to be done. You're like, I don't believe you, but I promise. That's all you're going to get. It's two things. And the first one is this. If you're following along in the sermon notes, this is the next bulleted point. It's not going to be on the screen, but it is on the paper. It's this. How do we become what we are? Church, we've got to focus on sharpening our gospel clarity. We've got to sharpen gospel clarity. See, one of the places that Paul gives another nutshell presentation of the gospel is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to read it to you. Listen to what he says. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And when Paul uses the word gospel, that word literally translated into the English language means this good news. Good news. That's what the gospel is. It is good news. And it's vital that we understand this, that we sharpen our understanding of the fact that the gospel is good news. Here's why. Oftentimes when I have conversations with people, even people coming into our churches, people coming from different churches, and I ask them, if you were to give me a 20-second rendition of what the gospel is, what would it be? And here's what I often hear. Well, God has given us instructions on how we should live, and we just follow after that, and we do whatever He's commanded us to do. That's what I think the gospel is. That is not the gospel. Okay? Let me be real clear. That is not the good news. That's not news at all. You know what that is? That is advice. And there's a difference between news and advice. See, good advice is something that you discuss, something that you practice, something that somebody gives to you that you take and now must go do something with. That's what advice is. News, on the other hand, is something that you hear about that has either already been done or is about to happen and be done by someone else outside of you. That's news. That's news. See, one of the best ways I can illustrate this, and I, I, this is one of my old faithfuls. I just keep pulling it out of the drawer, but I think it works. One of the best ways I can illustrate this is whenever somebody's expecting a young a, a baby. Okay? We have several in our church right now who are expecting children. Some of you have been in that position of expecting children. And when you're expecting children, you have couple showers at times. And the ladies are super pumped and the guys are like, do I really have to go to this thing? Right, But you show up at the couple shower and you're there at the couple shower and one of the common occurrences at a couple shower is for people who have had children already to give advice to those who are expecting children. And so you get these little index cards, right? They're going to be collected or a little scrapbook they're going to put together and they're going to hand it to the expectant parents and they're going to have all these nuggets of wisdom about how to raise and rear children, how to manage the first six months of craziness. Right? And the nugget of wisdom, the piece of advice I consistently give at those couple showers is this, and I've learned it by experience, is that you never, under any circumstance, open the bag of the diaper genie in a confined space. <laughs> now listen, that is good advice. Trust me. You do not want to open that bag in a place where there is no ventilation. You will wake up from being incapacitated at some point in the future. It's a horrendous smell. That's advice. But listen, when that couple goes in to the doctor to confirm what they suspect might be growing in their womb, and they do a sonogram, and they identify this fetus, this child that is in the mother's womb, this life that God has conceived there. And then, what do they do? At least these days, right? You, take a, you get a picture of the sonogram, and you go to um, uh, one, of the, one of the photo places online, and you kind of put all these cute little things, uh, arrange it around the photo, then you send out a what? A birth announcement, or, or, or a conception announcement. I don't know if that's really the way you want to go with that. Um, or when the child is born, a birth announcement. And what is that? That's news. Something has happened. Listen, church, 
Christianity, before it is ever advice about how you live, it is news about what has been done for you. Look at what Paul says. Even in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He doesn't say, listen, here's how you, here's, here's, the, here's the truth that you're to uphold and defend. You should, you should, you should, you should, you should. He says, here's the truth you uphold and you sink to hold high and sink deep. He was, he was, he was, he was, he was. It is always news that is to be declared. And so we have to sharpen our gospel clarity so that we're not dispensing advice to people Week in and week out, day in and day out, before they ever hear the news of what God has done in the person of Christ. And listen, listen, it's oftentimes that we need to resharpen that before our eyes consistently because we have a ten- tendency to lose focus on it. Tendency to lose focus on it, especially when there are churches f- whose pulpits are filled with people who call themselves life coaches and not pastors okay we have to constantly refocus and sharpen our vision it's like going to the eye doctor every year now you may not know this if you just met me but my vision is terrible okay i am i am if not legally blind very very close I've been wearing corrective lenses since i was in third grade because i couldn't see the board from my desk and so, if you saw my glasses right now, they are black, thick rim frames, and the lenses still poke out of them a little bit. Right? I'm severely nearsighted. I have contact lenses in now, but every year I go to the eye doctor, and you know what he does? He puts that device in front of my face. I looked up the name for it, but I, it's hard for me to pronounce, so I'm just going to give up on it. But it's a device that they put in front of your face. If you've been to the eye doctor, you know what I'm talking about. Right? And they go... They, they dial in the prescription that you had last year, and then they go, which is better, number one or number two? Number three or number four? Okay, number one or number two? Number three or number five? And listen, I'm going to be real honest, full disclosure. Half the time, there's not much of a difference to me. Okay? But the reason they do that is to sharpen your focus. So that you're seeing things clearly. And I have to go regularly back to the eye doctor, to the optometrist, to have my vision sharpened again and again and again and again. Because the older I get, the further downhill it seems to slide. And listen, the more that our eyes are drift from the person of Jesus to the things of this world, we have to constantly come back and refocus and refocus and refocus and sharpen our gospel clarity. And we as a church exist, Paul says, as a pillar of truth that would hold that truth high for this reason, to sharpen your gospel clarity week after week after week after week. Which is why when you show up here every Sunday, right? Off, listen, we, we, we want to be careful. Um, you, you usually don't hear messages on three ways to a better family or six ways to a better marriage. What you hear is us open the Bible and say, look at Jesus. 
how beautiful he is. Look at Jesus, how wonderful he is. Look at Jesus, how majestic he is. Look at Jesus, how good and kind and gracious he is. Look at what he's done for you, church. And so through our preaching, we aim to sharpen your gospel clarity. Through our renew courses that we offer throughout the fall and spring on Wednesday nights. They're in break right now. They resume August 21st. We're looking to sharpen your, and deepen your grip on gospel doctrine. So that you understand what the scriptures teach. So that you can have a good grisp. Gr- uh, grisp. I tried to put two words together. Grip and grasp. <laughs> Made up my own word this morning. So you can have a good grip on gospel doctrine. But it's also, listen, all of that happens partly so that you can declare the gospel yourself. It's not just my responsibility as a pastor every Sunday, though it is, but also you as members to be ones who are declaring the gospel in our community. And listen, for you to declare the gospel means, listen, it, uh, it doesn't mean less than you sharing your own testimony. doesn't mean less than that. doesn't mean less than you sharing your story about what God has done in your life, the things that He's brought healing to, the ways that He's transformed your marriage, your relationships. doesn't mean less than that, but I want to say something this morning very clearly. It means more than that. If you're going to share, if you're going to declare the gospel and share that with others, it means more than that. It means not only do you talk about your subjective experience, but you also talk about the objective reality of the fact that God is a holy, a just, and a, and a, and a, and a loving God. And that we are fallen and fractured creatures who were made in His image, but because of sin have been distorted. And that every part of us has been deformed by sin's effects. That's what we mean by total depravity. That our mind, the things that we think have been distorted. Our wills, the things that we desire has been distorted. Our emotions, the things that we feel about ourselves and others oftentimes just aren't right because of the effects of sin. That our hearts, the very wellspring of life, has been polluted. And yet, God, God did not abandon us to our sin. But God was rich in mercy. And from the foundations of the world, He determined to send His Son in time and space to live the perfect sinless life that we could not live. To stretch, be stretched wide and hung high upon the cross to be the substitute for our sin. We as sinners, that our sin fell upon Jesus so that our, His righteousness might be applied to us. So that we might be justified before God, declared right with Him because of this news of the Gospel. And that we might slowly, progressively be formed into His image so that one, and one day we might fully and finally be free from all sin and glory. It doesn't mean less than you sharing your story, but if you're going to share the gospel with someone, it means that you share more than your story. If we're going to be one who declares the gospel, a church that does that, and we're going to take it seriously. So we've got to sharpen our gospel clarity. And the second thing is this. We're moving. Second thing is this. Is that the reason this is so vital is because the more that we sharpen our gospel clarity, the more we see the shaping of gospel culture in our churches. So not only do we sharpen gospel clarity, but we shape gospel culture. Now let me say something to you. In life, there are some things, right, that you cannot create by merely focusing on the thing that you want to create in and of itself. 
But in life, there are some things that only get created whenever you focus on the thing that comes before the thing that you would like to see created. Did you follow me? Right? Let me, let me see if I can say that again. Let me, I'll just break it down for you in a more illustrative way. Right? When a young couple gets married and they decide we want to start a family, right? The husband doesn't go out during the day and focus really hard on trying to start a family. We want to have kids. We want to have kids. I'm just going to saturate my mind with having kids. The wife doesn't go out and say, I'm going to saturate my mind with having kids. No. When a husband and wife come together in a covenant union, a child is the product of that husband and wife's deep abiding love for each other and intimacy with each other that come together in such a way that a child is conceived and gestated and delivered and new life comes into the world see there are some things that are byproducts of things that come before them and listen that's why we we can't just say listen you ha- what, what we need to do to create gospel culture is focus on unity and focus on humility and focus on sanctification and focus, and focus on all these things that we want to see happen. Peace and joy. No, what, the way you get those things is by focusing on the thing that comes before the thing. Okay? Right, or to say it this way, more appropriately and accurately, The way that we become those kinds of people is by focusing on the person who can make us into those kinds of people. Not just by focusing on being those kinds of people. That's what Paul does. Look at the text again in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says there is a mystery of godliness that he speaks of. Now the word mystery there doesn't mean something that's really difficult to understand or hard to figure out. It's not like an episode of Scooby-Doo. Okay? Listen, I watched Scooby-Doo religiously as a child, and they were always trying to solve some kind of mystery. Right? They were always trying to figure out who it was that was already part of the cast of characters who was the ghost or who was the monster. Right? So it's not like an episode of Scooby-Doo where there's things that are hard to figure out or stranger things if you want to go there. Right? It's not like episodes of those kinds of mysteries, but a mystery in the Bible is this. Something that was once concealed but has now been revealed by something in the past that was once hidden that is now in the present fully brought to light. And Paul says there's a mystery of godliness. You know what the word godliness means? Paul uses it nine times in the letter of 1 Timothy. And what it means is this, is there's a God consciousness about us. Let me let Easterns have hijacked that language. Let me be real clear what I mean. There is a conscious awareness of God in our lives. There's a God-centeredness to our lives. So it's woven through everything that we do. So whether we're awake or we're asleep, whether we're thinking, dreaming, desiring, talking, eating, drinking, working, whatever you're doing, there's a centeredness upon God and a conscious awareness of God in your life because everything is ordered around Him. But notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul does not say, if you want your life to be centered on God, you have to focus really hard on centering your life around God in your daytimes and your nighttimes. That's not what he says. He doesn't say you have to focus really hard on your thinking, dreaming, and desiring, and your talking, eating, and drinking, and your child rearing. 
You focus really hard on centering your child rearing around God. Focus really hard on centering your parent honoring students upon God. You have to focus really hard in centering your authority, recognizing and respecting upon God. You have to focus really hard on centering your life around God and the way you love your spouse, the way you love your kids, the way you love your parents. You have to have this God consciousness, awareness of God's presence in your life in the, in the way in what you watch and what you spend and where you go and the way you love your church, honor and pray for your pastors. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say you have to be God, you have to focus on being God-centered in your attempts to invite a neighbor to church or to share the gospel with a family member or to host a block party in your neighborhood or in your efforts to show hospitality or in your everyday life and discipleship and worship. Listen to what he says. He says, if you want a God-centered life, you need to shift your attention from this person, from, from keeping your eyes upon yourself and lifting your eyes to His Son. That's exactly what He does. He says, the mystery of godliness. It was hidden. It's now revealed. You want to have a God-centered life in all these things then what you do is you lift your attention and fix your gaze upon Jesus who was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit, who was proclaimed among the nations, seen by angels, who was believed on in the world and taken up into glory. If you want your life to be centered on God, you just fix and focus your attention on Jesus. And then, the byproduct of that it becomes a God-centeredness in your parenting. It becomes a God-centeredness in your, your being a kid, whatever that is, right? Responding to your parents. There's a God-centeredness in your hospitality to the community. God, because your eyes aren't fixed on you going, I've got to tweak this, I've got to tweak this, I've got to tweak this, I've got to tweak this. Your eyes are fixed on Jesus. And He's forming you into the kind of person He desires you to be. We could talk about this for a long time. But I want to get real clear as we close this morning five ways this happens. And I promise I'm going to throw them at you quick. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. Right? Write down the scripture references. Write down what I'm saying. And then take them and discuss them in your life groups this week. It's going to be a great topic of conversation as you gather together and unpack what God is saying to us as a church. See, because the clearer we get on gospel doctrine, the more full is our expression of gospel culture. And here's five ways I think that's true. We could, I would talk about a lot more, but here's at least five. Number one, number one, the doctrine of the incarnation creates a culture of mission in the church. The doctrine of the incarnation creates a culture of mission. In John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus is with his disciples following his resurrection before his ascension. He's there in the room. He's appeared to them. They're locked behind closed doors, shutters closed, curtains drawn for fear of the Jews who had just taken Jesus' life. And when Jesus shows up in the room in John 20, 21, he says this, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. In other words, the eternal Son of God wasn't kicked back on the couch in heaven and just thought one day, hey, I think I'm going to go down there and rescue those fallen and fractured fools. No, it was in the Father's plan from the foundation of the world to send the Son. The Father sends the Son. And in the same way that the Father sends the Son, the Son sends the church. Jesus says, in the same way that I was sent by the Father, so I am sending you. 
to be a witness to me in the world. So listen, if you're struggling today to bear witness to the gospel on your street, if you're lacking a heart for the community that God has planted us in, you don't need to look in the mirror and go, I need to tweak my heart and make it love the people who live around me more than it already does. What you need to do is raise your eyes from yourself and fix them on God's Son who came, was manifested in the flesh for you and I to seek and save the lost. And you dwell on that gospel truth that gospel doctrine and if we will hold that high and we will sink that deep in our lives then it begins to transform and change not only us personally but corporately as a church and begins to reflect a culture of mission because we've been thinking about and cherishing and loving the doctrine of the incarnation it's about more than just four weeks in december anybody following me i think Two people are. So we're going to keep going. The doctrine of the resurrection. Listen. It shapes and creates a culture of hope. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. In verse 4. We read this every time we baptize someone here. A redeemer. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into his death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead. By the glory of the Father. We too might walk in newness of life. We're buried with Christ under the water. We're raised with Christ above the water so that as Christ was buried and raised, we too might live a new kind of life in Him. Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 3, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, Paul throughout his letters is going to say this, that if you've died with Christ, and you've been raised with Christ, in the same way that He was literally raised from the grave, so also you were spiritually raised with Him to share the life that He now has, then listen, you don't spend your life looking backwards in despair, but you spend your life looking forwards in hope. No matter what's taken place in your past, the doctrine of resurrection creates a culture of hope. And listen, not only for you individually, but also for a church corporately. See, one of the reasons I think there may be some... Uh, insecurity, concern about the possibility of a merger with our neighbors next door is because some of you were with us through our last transition. And you remember the past. And you remember the heartache. And you remember the turnover. And you remember the people who left because change took place. But if we believe in the doctrine of the resurrection, Listen, I want to know where the culture of hope is. Not only in your life individually, about the things that have been heartaches for you personally, but also the things that have grieved us corporately as a church as we look forward to what God would do in the future. Third, I told you they were going to be quick. The doctrine of sanctification, listen, it creates a culture of unity. A culture of unity. In Romans 8.29, Paul says it this way, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Listen, one of the ways 
that you get unity within the body is whenever there is an objective standard to which everyone in the body is being formed. A.W. Tozer said it this way. I love the way he said it. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned with the same tuning fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meet together, each one looking away to Christ and are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. So you want to have unity in a church? You don't focus on unity. You focus on Jesus together. Fourth, the doctrine of regeneration creates a culture of humility. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, And you were dead, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in, the, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast God made you alive not because of anything that you have done and so you have no platform for arrogance for ego or for pride in your life if you really understand the doctrine of regeneration that God made you alive you become one of the most humble people and this becomes one of the most humble places on the face of the earth and then finally finally the doctrine of justification, it creates a culture of inclusion. You know, Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, he talks about Peter. How Peter, before a certain party of the Jews showed up there in Galatia, how he used to dine with all the Gentiles. He used to hang out with all those dirty people. Those uncircumcised people. But when a certain faction of the Jews from Jerusalem show up there in Galatia, Peter's like, well, I got face to keep. I got a reputation to maintain. And so I don't eat with those guys anymore. And Paul says, I confronted him to his face. Not because, he says, not because he was breaking the no racism rule. He says because he was violating the gospel. The gospel of justification. That if we're made right with God, not by anything in us, but by the work of Christ and Christ alone, then we become one of the most inclusive peoples and places on the face of the earth. People from all backgrounds, all races, all economic classes, they find a place to belong within God's household. The church of the living God. A pillar and buttress of truth. So listen, are you struggling with opening your life to new people who aren't like you this morning? You need to sharpen your doc vision of the doctrine of justification. 
If you're struggling with pride this morning, you need to sharpen your vision of the doctrine of regeneration. If you're struggling with strife in your relationships with your brothers and sisters in the church this morning, then what you need to do is not focus on you, but focus on Jesus and sharpen your vision of the doctrine of sanctification, being tuned to Jesus. Are you without hope this morning because of your past? You don't need to try to muster it up yourself, but you need to focus on Jesus who was raised from the grave. And if He can... If the Spirit of God is able to raise Him from the grave, and that same Spirit is at work in you, then listen, He can heal, He can restore, and He can change anything that you have found to be hopeless. Are you struggling this morning with a heart for the community? Then sharpen your vision of the incarnation of Jesus. Listen, I'll close with this. A quote by... A man by the name of Ray Ortland, who's a pastor in Nashville, he writes on this idea of gospel culture a lot. And this is what he says. Churches that do not exude mission, humility, inclusion, peace, hope, unity, even if they have gospel doctrine on paper, they undercut their own doctrine at a functional level where it should count in the lives of actual people. Churches that are haughty, exclusivistic, contentious, exhausted, past-oriented and in denial are revealing not just a lack of niceness, they are revealing a gospel deficit, a doctrinal betrayal. The current rediscovery of the gospel as doctrine is good. It's very good. But a further discovery of a gospel-formed culture, the gospel embodied in the church, will be immeasurably better, filled with divine power such as we have not yet seen. It's what revival will look like next. Listen, church. This is who we are. A pillar and buttress of truth. We exist to hold the gospel high and to sink the gospel deep. And to do so, we are going to fight regularly to sharpen your clarity on the gospel. So there might be a culture of the gospel that is embodied here by this church as we seek to be light and salt in the community where God has planted us. We're going to hold it high and sink it deep. I hope you'll join us in that. Let's pray together. Father, today, we're grateful for the good news. The good news of Jesus That you did not leave us to ourselves to languish in our own sin, but that you sent a Savior for us who would rescue us from Satan's sin and death 